Welcome and thanks for listening to Texas Tech Health Check from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I'm your host, Melissa Whitfield. We want you to get healthy and stay healthy with help from evidence-based advice from our physicians, healthcare providers, and researchers. TTUHSC President Dr. Lori Rice-Spearman recently announced that the university received the Carnegie classification of a very high research activity university among special focus four-year institutions. TTUHSC Senior Vice President of the Office of Research and Innovation, Dr. Lance McMahon is our guest on this episode, and he explains what this newly announced classification means to the university. He also explains the type of research being done at TTUHSC, how it's funded, and how undergraduate and graduate students are involved in research as well. Dr. McMahon, welcome to our podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the Health Sciences Center? Thank you for having me. This is a great opportunity, and I'm looking forward to sharing some information with you today. I'm the Senior Vice President for Research and Innovation at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. In that role, I oversee the entire research enterprise of the institution, or at least the processes that go into such a complex operation, such as grant submissions, research integrity, human subjects, animal use, institutional biosafety, environmental health and safety. And of course, we also work hard to bring together our faculty researchers to facilitate their success, create collaborations, and otherwise make them successful in their efforts to obtain external funding to support their research. Personally, I do preclinical pharmacology research. I'm a neuroscientist and behavioral pharmacologist my focus has been on preclinical, basically early stage discovery research related to substances of abuse and also psychiatric medications and understanding the receptor mechanisms or pharmacology of those medications and substances of abuse using preclinical animal models. Well, again, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Now, most of our guests have been physicians and we've had a number of researchers talking about alcohol addiction and lupus a few weeks ago. And before I started working here, I just thought that all research was clinical research. Can you explain the difference? And what areas of research do we do here at the Health Sciences Center? The research enterprise here at the Health Sciences Center is, is very broad. It includes the type of work I just described. We employ chemistry techniques in my research, for example. So we study small molecules. We modify those molecules through chemical synthetic processes. We try to create better new drugs. We try to reduce the side effects of those drugs. And that's a, an example of preclinical pharmaceutical sciences research that's taking place here in my laboratory. But of course, the research here is broad. It includes electrophysiology. It includes biochemistry, gene research, immunotherapy research. And so a lot of that material that I just described occurs in the wet lab, so to speak. We sometimes refer to that as, if it's outside of living organisms, we would refer to that kind of research as in vitro research, meaning basically studying something in a test tube in a, in a synthetic 
system that you develop to try to mimic a living system. We also do experiments here at the Health Sciences Center in non-human animals, primarily rodents. There's some other work that's done. Certain kinds of animals are important to predict toxicology and drug delivery and, and drug formulations. And so we do have animals besides rodents that are studied here at the Health Sciences Center. Along the way of that translational pipeline is clinical research, which you just referred to, and that is our physicians and our pharmacists, our nurses, our physicians, assistants, our physical therapists, audiologists, you name it, who are studying human patients and collecting data from human patients. It's very important to an academic health center such as ours. It's really what makes a health-related institution such as TTUHSC an important part of discovery in medicine and health. Much of the cutting edge work, the innovative questions, basic science questions occur in this environment of an academic health center where we have physicians and pharmacists, nurses, and allied health professions who, who are in training or on faculty and conducting research as a part of their overall mission to also teach the next generation of healthcare providers. And then there's another stop along the way of that translational pipeline, which is epidemiological research or big data research. This is information that can be derived from electronic health records. It's public health data. These are pieces of information or, or data sets that can be collected from the public health department. And we have experts who look at those population public health level data to help inform the healthcare and the and the types of questions that we may want to ask as part of doing experiments along that translational pipeline. So we have all of that here at the Health Sciences Center and we're very proud of that. And you know one additional point I'll make is we often think of forward translation of early stage discovery, some of that in vitro work that I described going to patients. We also go the reverse direction. We use information that's derived from patients. We use information that's derived from those big data sets, population health, to identify questions that we can potentially only answer through those early stage discovery efforts. And so we would call that reverse translation. So taking human data, developing questions, and then bringing that back into the wet lab or the, the, the basic laboratory to ask fundamental questions to help resolve some of the, the big data questions that come up. Do researchers specialize in one area or does it change per semester or year publication? The answer to that question depends on what stage of training the researcher is in. It's not uncommon for early stage researchers, undergraduate students, even high school students. I thought of, uh, my experience as an elementary school and middle school student doing Drosophila melanogaster fruit fly breeding experiments and sort of genetic phenotyping experiments. My career did not go in that direction. So my point is that if you're doing research early in your career, there will be a tendency to try out different things and the, the different areas of research can be very different. As one progresses in their training, if research is going to be a fundamental part of their professional activity, they will tend to focus on one area more intensely to develop expertise. The researchers in the world come in different from different areas and they have different skill sets. One thing, though, about them, is, especially if they're funded, is that they're very good at what they do and they've learned a lot 
about how to ask a very focused question. And in order to compete in that space, it's important for researchers to begin to focus their efforts on, on one or two areas. Then as, as a researcher progresses in their career, they may engage in collaborations, and collaborations are very important. And so you can then add expertise to your one's individual expertise by branching out and working with other individual re other researchers who have complementary yet sort of distinct skill sets that help bring multiple viewpoints and multiple techniques and approaches to answering a particular question. Then can you explain how research is verified and do other experts in the same field verify and, as you said, collaborate with researchers here? Research is verified through replication. Replication is a fundamental component of the research enterprise and the process of scientific inquiry. It's not useful if a particular finding is only unique or selectively found within a given laboratory or generated by a given individual. The scientific method and the scientific process is to focus intensely on a single variable or a single set of variables and to try to understand how changing those variables modifies some kind of outcome. So the point is you want to know that you are isolating a particular variable. And one way to do that and examine the generality of findings that come from one laboratory is to test, do the same tests in a different laboratory. Now, the same individual in the same laboratory can repeat an experiment. That's useful. So, for example, if I, if I do an experiment, I get an outcome, and then I'm a little concerned about the outcome and, and its replicability and maybe whether it's real. Let's just put it that way. I may repeat that experiment, and if I don't get the same outcome, then, okay, you got a problem. You haven't controlled the variables in the way that you should have. The interpretation of the results is just not appropriate. So internal replication within a lab is important, but so is replication across laboratories, across geographic regions by different individuals, different labs. And, and when the same outcomes are generated in an experiment conducted by different people, different places with different equipment, that really increases the confidence that the outcome of an experiment is valid, that you have controlled the variables appropriately, and you really understand the relationship between variables in, in an experiment. And, and that's really what the scientific method is is all about is control gaining control over variables and, and understanding in precise ways and how those variables are related the the bad news is that our external funding agencies and the people who want to fund work uh, don't get very excited about spending money on doing something a second time or a third time and so that's a little bit of a of a dichotomy the national institutes of health has tried to address that by focusing more intentionally on what we call rigor and reproducibility, reproducibility of data sets. And so while peer reviewers, the people who do the kind of work that I do, if I submit a grant proposal, I would have a review panel of peers look at my work or my proposal. They may not get excited if I have a bunch of replicates of experiments in that grant proposal. 
the NIH has tried to underscore the importance of building in some level of replication within the scientific inquiry to ensure that the data that we collect are valid and the interpretations that we draw from them are appropriate. So that's by having other people reproduce your experiments, you're essentially building trust from the rest of us who aren't familiar with research and kind of building integrity for the research that you're, you're doing. And, and, and increasing one's credibility amongst one's peers. That's a very important point because the, the flip side of that is if a, a researcher publishes a very noteworthy finding and then other researchers go out and try to replicate that and are unable to replicate it despite their best efforts, then that leads to questions. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that the initial investigator who reported the findings was doing anything on purpose to, to mislead. It could indicate any number of things. Lack of proper experimental control, as I was talking about earlier. And, and uh, so replication does build trust and credibility in one's scientific area and amongst one's peers. So how is research funded? Research is funded a variety of ways. One of the ways that research commonly is funded here at the Health Sciences Center is through federal, state, and sometimes local support. The federal funding that many of our investigators compete for is funding through the National Institutes of Health. That is the largest government supporter of biomedical research in the world. Of course, there are pharmaceutical companies, that private industries that fund research, but in terms of government public funding, the NIH is the biggest in the world. It's really the gold standard for many of us who are on the faculty when we're trying to get our, our research funded. So it's a pretty involved process, and it's developed over years. It involves creating a grant proposal. The grant proposal includes a single one-page document that provides an overview of, of the grant ideas. And then later pages of the grant document go into some more detail with respect to showing that one has looked at the published literature to understand what has been done. You have to know what's been done in order to identify what hasn't and to develop questions around answering those unknowns or addressing the unknowns in the literature. Proposing good questions, and then developing scientific experiments with appropriate methods and statistical analyses and the contingencies in place, it's important to acknowledge that there may be two or three different outcomes to an experiment. And acknowledging that provides evidence to grant reviewers that the PI has considered different options. That document, the grant proposal, is submitted to the funding agency, for example, the, the National Institutes of Health. There is a branch of the NIH called the Center for Scientific Review that brings in all the proposals and then assigns them to what are called grant review study sections. The grant review study sections are comprised of individuals who have expertise in a particular area, so each study section may focus on behavior in psychiatry or genetic uh, underpinnings of behavior or immunology uh, drug development and discovery. So depending upon the content and, and the particular area that's of focus in the grant, it will be assigned to the relevant study section. That grant is read by up to four, usually three individuals on that grant review panel. 
and each of those three individuals provides their critiques of the grant. The entire study section, which can include from anywhere between 10 to 30 individuals, they're all responsible for evaluating the grant, but it's really the three assigned reviewers who look at the grant most carefully. There's a discussion at the study section panel, and then a call for final scores. There will be scores assigned to the grant from best to worst, if you will. And then by rank ordering those grants from best to worst, then the funding agencies will look at the ones that were ranked the highest or received the best scores, if you will, and then select from those grants that are to be paid, for example, from the budget that's provided by the legislature. Now, here at the Health Science Center, we have physicians, researchers, and patients, and I think some of us might sometimes overlook the student aspect of the Health Science Center. How are students involved in research, and do undergraduate students conduct research as well? Students are at the core of our mission. They're so important to us. That includes not only the the individuals that we are training to engage in healthcare delivery, the so-called healthcare professionals, but also our PhD scholarly research scientists. And that's really what it's all about in the human experience, right, is we have a certain amount of time to be effective in our professions. And in order to sort of perpetuate the process of discovery and scientific inquiry, we have to hand off that knowledge and pass that knowledge on to the next generation, if you will, of individuals. So students are so, so important. And I would point out that even though I would consider myself, you know, the senior vice president for research and innovation, I'm a professor of pharmaceutical sciences, I'm on faculty, I've been in my position for, you know, on faculty for decades. In, in some ways, I consider myself to be a student. I think you would find that faculty here, many of them would acknowledge that they're constantly learning and constantly in this taking on a perspective of, of being mentored and, and, and learning. But the students are, are really important. And we engage those students in the research enterprise in a variety of ways. They volunteer. It's not uncommon for hardworking, inquisitive students to volunteer their time to work in a laboratory. We also have paid positions where students can come in. And those would be professionally paid positions. They may be student-like in terms of where they are in their career trajectory. They may not technically be students if they're on salary, but it's not uncommon for individuals between their undergraduate training and later stages of training to do a period of, of paid work before they then move on to pursue a PhD, for example, or go into a professional degree program. Of course, then there are the very important master's and PhD level students who receive pretty focused, intense training in a particular area of study. A master's can include a master's thesis, which involves experimentation. There's also master's that are not attached to lab work or a thesis. That's usually a year of work. The PhD, that's three to four years or more of very systematic, in-depth inquiry of the student learning how to do experiments, learning from their mentor, learning how to learn, if you will, and then making a, a pretty solid contribution to the scientific literature by conducting experiments over several years. Has the number of undergraduate students interested in conducting research increased in the past few years? It has in some areas. 
for some domains of research. Neuroscience, the study of the brain, has grown over the last few decades. It's almost doubled in size, at least in terms of the number of PhD degrees that have been granted in neuroscience-related fields. Some areas have been more stable. There certainly has not been a decline, at least in the biomedical and pharmaceutical sciences. There's at least been a constant level of degrees conferred each year in, in those areas, and, and then there are some areas where there have been increases. Big data and artificial intelligence is another area. The, the artificial intelligence space is highly interrelated with biomedical and pharmaceutical discovery because big data can be applied to any number of things that we do as humans and certainly is, is being applied to answer questions that are related to health. And so there are going to be increases in the number of individuals and degrees and, and need and demand for students who are trained to engage in big data analysis and then also have the basic biomedical and pharmaceutical sciences knowledge that's necessary to then, you know, explore questions in those areas with artificial intelligence and big data analysis. What does it mean for the university to receive the Carnegie designation? The Carnegie designation is very important to our institute because it provides clear evidence of our research excellence. This, for those who, who don't know, we have been included in a list of 22 health-related institutions, including some of the best in the world. Some in our state include Baylor College of Medicine, UT Southwestern. Others in the nation include Rockefeller University, Weill, Cornell College of Medicine, Albert Einstein, these are some of the best healthcare institutions in the world, and we're in that list. We're, we're their peers, according to this list. To get on the list, uh, the research institution has to have more than $5 million in research expenditures and confer more than 20 research scholarly PhD degrees in a single year. So we've exceeded the $5 million benchmark, and we've far exceeded the minimum 20 degrees that have to be conferred each year. We're, in fact, we're up to 50 or 55 each year in terms of the number of PhD scholarly degrees that are conferred. Because we have achieved those minimum criteria, we are the best of the best. And it, it clearly shows that, it shows a number of things. One is that we have some of the best faculty in the world here at the Health Sciences Center in our schools. The School of Medicine, the School of Pharmacy, Nursing, Health Professions, Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences and our new School of Population and Public Health, all of the faculty in those schools have contributed excellence to help us achieve the Carnegie designation. So we have world-class faculty. We also have world-class students, going back to students and trainees. We have very talented students, and it's the hard work and efforts and vision and imagination and creativity of those students working with their mentors that helps create the scientific discoveries that then put us in that higher echelon of universities, helps us get external funding, it helps us get our peer-reviewed research publications and high-impact journals. So our faculty and our students are really to be congratulated for their efforts and really being the, the backbone of helping us achieve the Carnegie designation. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me today. Thanks for listening to Texas Tech Health Check. Make sure to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts so you won't miss our next episode. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. 
always seek immediate medical advice from your physician or your healthcare provider for questions regarding your health or medical condition. Texas Tech Health Check is brought to you by Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and produced by Tierra Castillo, Susana Cisneros, and me, Melissa Whitfield.